0: We're going to highlight how to treat a moderate to severe patient with Crohn's, and we're going to show you a few data slides on biosimilar infliximab. These are my relevant disclosures. So this has been mentioned throughout the day-to-day, treating the target. Uh, The goals of therapy are, of course, to induce clinical remission, which I define that as the absence of symptoms, and try to avoid short and both long-term toxicity of treatment. If you do those things, you almost always enhance the patient's quality of life. In 2018, remission should be steroid-free. We want to avoid repeated courses of steroids, which is really uh, very common still, despite our effective therapies, and inducing these deep remissions, so biologic remission which means normalization of biomarkers and mucosal healing and thus preventing complications. We also are focusing more on um, unnecessary uh, utilization of services like hospitalizations and ER visits, so trying to cut down on those types of utilization. What questions do you need to ask before you begin treatment? So first are the symptoms from active IBD. Uh, Dave Hudesman mentioned C. diff. It's very common, compl- uh, complicates 10 to 15% of colitis flares. You want to exclude that. Certainly, IBS-like symptoms are present in up to 40% of patients seen in a referral center. And then in the Crohn's patient, post-surgical causes can be quite prevalent, so bile salt-induced diarrhea, small intest- bacterial overgrowth and malabsorption from short bowel syndrome are quite common. Are there other factors present that could be exacerbating symptoms? So think about NSAIDs and antibiotics. Disease location, can be important. We talked about colonic disease uh, would make patients eligible for some medications. Ilial disease, patients uh, would be qualif- would qualify for bedesinide, And then how severe are the symptoms? So we think about prognostic factors such as in the care pathway, but also when the patient's in the office, are they housebound? Are they bathroom bound? Those are patients that have severe symptoms that need to feel better quickly and they can't wait several weeks to feel better. And then are you inducing or maintaining remission? Yeah. <laughs> and patient selection when you're thinking about moderate to severe Crohn's is critical. So patients that have stricturing disease, in my opinion, are not great candidates for medical treatment. And I'm going to show you a slide not yet published in full that really highlights this. This is from the Cleveland Clinic and they looked at, this was retrospective, looking at nearly 250 patients that had stricturing Crohn's diagnosed on either CT or MR enterography. About half of these patients needed surgery within a year And what they did is they developed a simple stricture score. If a patient on imaging had either an internal fistula, evidence of small bowel obstruction, proximal dilatation, which they defined as three centimeters or more of dilation, and abdominal mass or abscess or mesenteric stranding, those were all uh, given one point. And if you see, looking at the graph, patients that had none of those factors did quite well with biologics in red versus no biologics in blue. But if any of those factors were present on imaging, patients did poorly. And almost all of them required surgery. So this is not the early Miguel Reguero post-op study, which showed about 90% of patients had no evidence of endoscopic recurrence if given infliximab post-operatively. This is the multicenter PREVENT study, which looked at outcomes at 76 weeks. So the primary outcome is on the left which was clinical recurrence of symptoms defined by the CDAI as well as endoscopic recurrence, so a Rukert score of two or more. And you can see that they did not meet their primary endpoint. The infliximab is in light blue and placebo is in dark blue, and you can see that there was a trend toward favoring the infliximab, but it wasn't statistically significant. If you look only at endoscopic recurrence, however, you can see that infliximab-treated patients were about um, half as likely to have endoscopic recurrence compared to placebo patients. And if you follow patients out a little further, again, you can see that trend for clinical recurrence as well. So not great, but clearly endoscopically, and we know that end- endoscopy correlates with outcomes, infliximab after surgery is an excellent postoperative strategy. This is just one summary slide looking at the anti-TNFs. These are the pivotal trials, which were the pick the winner studies. so induction therapy. Responders were then randomized to maintenance or placebo. And you can see that we're looking at Accent 1, Charm, and Precise 2 across the top row. Look at the light shaded blue boxes. And you can look at net remission among the different compounds. And you can see that the net remission is approximately the same with the three different anti-TNF agents. I have two slides on the infliximab biosimilar Inflectra versus the Innovator Remicade. This was from the pivotal Pfizer studies and this has not been published in full. These were bio-naive patients that were randomized to receive either the biosimilar, which here is in red, or the Innovator Remicade in blue. You're looking at week 6, week 14, and week 30, and you can see no uh, significant difference between the different um, groups. At week 30, patients were then randomly allocated to either continue the process started. So for Inflectra, that's in blue, and for infliximab, or Remicade is in green. The Inflectra switch to Remicade is in red, and the Infliximab switch to Inflectra is in purple, and we're now looking at one year here. You can see no difference with a one-time switch. So this is about 220 patients, Uh, not a non inferiority study, but pretty reassuring evidence that um, for new starts they're equally effective, and a one-time switch seems to be safe. Now, surprisingly, we haven't seen much sonic data today, but I just want to, when we're talking about how to treat moderate to severe disease, uh, this is still showing the best therapy is an anti-TNF in combination with a thiopurine. If you're looking at clinical remission here on the left, you can see that the combination arm in green uh, has superior results to infliximab monotherapy or azathioprine monotherapy, and if you look at mucosal healing, the rates with combination therapy without any adjustments is about 44%. Now you can dig into Sonic a little more deeply and you can see even better results. Um, So if you look at the left side of this graph, it's very busy, but the point here is that patients that had a baseline endoscopy that showed active disease that were given combination therapy, about 65% of those patients were able to achieve mucosal healing. And if you look at early diagnosis patients, so those less than 18 months from diagnosis with an active disease documented on endoscopy, the mucosal healing rates with combination therapy without adjustment was about 70%. So do you really need the concurrent azathioprine? This is a study that's been alluded to throughout the conference today. It really calls into question whether the azathioprine itself is is in improving efficacy or if it's improving drug levels, and this supports the fact that azathioprine is really improving drug levels. So if you look at Quartile three and quartile four, which are the right side of this graph, quartile three is 2.36 to less than five, and quartile four is above five. And you can see that the addition of the thiopurine in this subgroup analysis is not really doesn't really uh, improve outcomes. So if you get the infliximab level above two, above five, most of us in the U.S. are shooting for above five. Outcomes seem to be quite good, and this is looking at steroid-free remission. So what do you do in your patient that's losing response? So as the case pointed out, drug levels were assessed and that's critically important. it all stems from this Mayo Clinic study, which was retrospective that was published in 2010. So what they did is they looked at patients. These patients were all treated with infliximab. They looked at what happened based on drug levels after adjustments in therapy. And the bottom line is if your patient has a subtherapeutic drug concentration and high titer antibodies, you should change to another agent. Now you could also change to a different mechanism of action now that we have two other mechanisms. If a patient has a subtherapeutic concentration and undetectable or low trough levels, you can increase the dose by either shortening the interval and or increasing the dose. And you can also consider adding concurrent immune suppression. Now in the middle, this is critically important. Those that had a therapeutic concentration, um, when those patients were scoped, over 60% of them had no active disease at the time of endoscopy. So if your patient has a therapeutic drug level and is still symptomatic, the first thing you should do is restage them completely to make sure that they truly have inflammatory disease activity driving their symptoms. And these are the results when they look back. Patients that had detectable antibodies, if you increase the dose of infliximab in light blue or aqua, you can see that very few percent of patients responded, whereas if they changed anti-TNF to adalimumab, over 90% responded. For those with subtherapeutic concentrations, switching was less effective than simply increasing the dose of the infliximab. So this is a busy slide, but there's a couple of take-home points here. This is from the Israel, Israeli group. Um, this was over 100 patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis treated with both infliximab and adalimumab, and they looked at drug levels as they relate to mucosal healing. So the first bullet point here is in the red box, and it seemed to be that an infliximab level of over 5 and an adalimumab level of over 7 uh, were about 85% specific for mucosal healing. So that seems to be the sweet spot. But then you see in the bottom part of this uh, slide a shouldering effect. So with adalimumab, it seemed that getting le- above levels, of tw- levels above 12 was not associated with higher rates of mucosal healing. And when you're looking at infliximab, a level of 8 or above was not really associated with greater rates of mucosal healing. So you probably want your infliximab patients to be 5 to 8, and your adalimumab patients to be somewhere 7 to 12, based on this retrospective study. So this is the Adam Schaffetz study, which really looked at proactive drug monitoring. I will admit, I'm in the group of providers that really believe strongly in proactive monitoring. And this is the first study to really look at that. So what Adam did is this was retrospective. He frequently checks infliximab levels in his patients. His goal is between 5 and 10. And he simply compared his results to those of his partners who did not check proactive levels. You can see that Adam is in blue and his partners are in red. I'm sure his partners don't like him showing this slide. But you can see that the persistent rates for Adam's patients were much better than those of his partners. In fact, his loss of response over time here was only about 10%. There have been a number of studies that have been prospective and additional retrospective studies that have looked at this, but I'm going to highlight one prospective study called Taxit. So, Taxit took patients that were already on infliximab, they did a drug level and about a third of patients at baseline had an infliximab level below 3. This was a European study, so their goals here were 3 to 7. And then all patients had a one-time adjustment in their dose based on the baseline drug level. Interestingly, at baseline, only 65% of patients were in remission, but after a one-time dose adjustment, the rate of remission went up to nearly 90%. Patients were then randomized to either proactive monitoring or standard clinical monitoring, and the outcome was both clinical and biological remission at one year, and you can see that there was no difference. If you look at flare rates, patients in the traditional monitoring arm had about three times the rate of flares compared to the proactive arm, but for this outcome there was no difference. So this is widely perceived as a negative study. I would argue that this what this says is that a one-time look at your patient's drug levels with an assessment is effective. And I think changing your remission rates from 65 to 88 percent is quite valuable. Um, Jean-Fred showed the COM study, but again, this is getting a treat to target. So if you're going to improve outcomes in your moderate to severe patient, you need to push the envelope. You need to do more objective assessment to improve outcomes. A little bit on vetalizumab and Stelara. I don't think this has been shown today. This is the Gemini 3 study, which was a second induction study for patients with Crohn's. You're looking at clinical remission at week six and clinical remission at week 10. <coughs> Placebo here is in gray, vetalizumab is in blue, and you can see at week 6 that the results are somewhat disappointing as far as clinical remission with only 19% of vedo-treated patients compared to 12% of the placebo-treated patients in remission. And it looks even worse in the TNF-exposed patients compared to the TNF-naive. But if you give the drug a little bit more time and go out to week 10, you can see that the results do improve. You can get to nearly 30% remission in the overall population compared to 13% of placebo. And again, it's better in the TNF naive patients compared to those that were exposed. So. There's a lot of buzz about vetalizumab for Crohn's and perhaps not being an effective agent for Crohn's and more effective for ulcerative colitis, but I think this study is fairly definitive that it does work for patients with Crohn's disease, and most of the post-marketing studies have supported that as well. This is the maintenance studies, uh, maintenance trial Gemini-2, so patients that responded were then re-randomized to either vetalizumab every eight weeks or every four weeks, which is dark red and blue and placebo. Focus on pink because that's the FDA approved interval of every eight weeks, and you can see if you're looking at remission or response the vetalizumab maintenance therapy after response to induction therapy is more effective than placebo. Two slides with Eustakinumab and Crohn's. This is looking at response on the left, remission on the right. This is short-term responses and you're looking at the TNF exposed group on the first row and the TNF naïve group on the bottom, highlighting that Eustakinumab is an effective induction agent for Crohn's. And again, if you give it to biologic biologic naïve patients, the responses are better. And in those that respond to ustekinumab induction, this is the immunity study. You're looking at every eight weeks, which is in aqua, I guess, and placebo, which I think is in blue. And you can again see that ustekinumab maintenance is more effective than placebo. And I think there was a study looking, a question looking at nine versus 12 weeks. You can see really both intervals were effective in this maintenance study. So I will finish on time. This is my summary and conclusion. So when you're thinking about biologic therapy, it's very important you carefully select them. You want to avoid patients with complicated disease because you're going to have better result in that situation by sending them to a surgeon and developing a postoperative strategy that at least incorporates endoscopic assessment regularly. Number two, if a patient doesn't respond or only partially responds to treatment, exclude a complication first and confirm that a patient has active inflammation. If a patient has active inflammation, optimize therapy, if possible, based on monoclonal antibody levels, if we know what those mean. And we do know what those mean, at least for anti-TNFs. Thirdly, for patients treated with anti-TNFs, either consider concurrent immune suppression if you're going to do reactive testing or proactive drug monitoring. Fourth, treating beyond symptoms is essential to improve outcomes, although we do need more data on whether this uh, prevents complications. Veto and ustekinumab are excellent options for treatment, and I consider these as first-line options in my patients with Crohn's. Selection depends on patient preference, comorbid conditions, severity of symptoms, et cetera, and the reality is it often depends on what the payer is willing to let you give. And biosimilars are here. Uh, they seem to be effective, and at the very least, we know that a one-time switch is safe, but we don't have any data on multiple switching yet. Thank you very much.